So our guest today has been a domestique and lead-out man for quite a good while now and has recently switched from UA Team Emirates to Lidl Trek alongside fast man Mads Pedersen. I didn't know much about him, Yenzi, but what a great guy with a lot of really cool stories. Yes, absolutely. And I'm happy we had him on because he's such a nice gentleman and what a long journey he has to go home, 10,000 miles. It's even longer than flying to Philadelphia, I believe, from Europe. So he's back home, eager to race both national championship races, the TT and the road race. And of course, we keep our fingers crossed for him, for our guest. And without further ado, here he is. All right, everyone. Welcome Ryan Gibbons to Bobby and Jens. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Well, um, you know, I'm doing a little bit of research on you, and we're recording on the same day back in 2021 when you won the Trofeo uh, Calvia in Mallorca. So obviously you're not in Mallorca right now. Where are you coming to us from? Uh, yeah, exactly. Not not in Mallorca. Uh, good memories of, of, of that race and, and that uh, that place, but uh, I'm currently in Johannesburg, South Africa. So, so sunny summer South Africa. You are back home in South Africa right now, but we talked yes. five days ago when um, you were still in a training camp. So how did that transition happen so quickly? Exactly. Yeah, I think I saw you, was it Friday or Saturday? Um, our training camp ended on Sunday and first thing Monday morning, 6 a.m. I was on a nice 12-hour flight back, back home um, and I'm here just for about 10 days for our national championships in South Africa next weekend. Ryan, where's your home base uh, in Europe, or do you commute back and forth uh, in between races down to to Jayberg? No, I'm only here for for kind of the off season, and uh, fortunately enough, um, I'm able to do my nationals this year. Otherwise, yeah, the majority of the of the season, I'm in Europe, and I'm in Girona, Spain, um, which is an amazing part of the world. A lot of expats there, a lot of English speaking expats, so Americans, Australians, South Africans, and yeah, it's a, it's a good good part of the world. But but if you live in Girona, that's where about 300 billion other pro cyclists live. Don't you sometimes on a Monday go, no, I don't want to see him. He just ran into me on a weekend and he gave me a kick in a sprint and he blocked me before that climb and I don't want to see him in a coffee shop. How, how does that go sometimes? I think it's up to 400 billion there now. Um, it's no, exactly. It's It's unbelievable. Uh, I think when the first time I was there, maybe eight years ago, you know, there was a, a few cyclists. Now it's it's overrun by cyclists. So it is hard to to get away. You know, like you say, you have a fight with a guy on the weekend and then you're at a coffee shop and you, you're looking at him from across the, the table or you're at a grocery store. Um, definitely getting a little bit too densely populated. Uh, so maybe it's time to move on. Um, but yeah, it's, it's unbelievable how many cyclists are there from professionals, amateurs, aspiring pros, even just people touring. Um, so yeah, it's definitely a cycling town. Yeah, we definitely know a lot about Girona, but I don't know much, hardly at all, about Johannesburg. Tell us about your training base down there. Um, so this is where I'm from. You know, the friends and family is here. Uh, I've got a lot of good friends who I kind of grew up cycling with around here. Um, for any of any people who've been here um, as, a, as a tourist or, or for kind of training camps, they'll know that South Africa is quite a nice place to train because of the weather. Um, however, kind of the, the training roads in my city are not the best. Um, the city itself is, is I wouldn't say dangerous to, to scare away tourists, but it's definitely 
people aren't really cycling conscientious. Uh, so my training loops are, are quite limited. I do the same roads day in, day out when I'm here. Um, it is for only about two months of the year. Um, but I enjoy it. And again, it's it's good weather and, and I get to ride with my mates and, and you know, I don't get to do it for 10 months of the year. So so when I do it, I'm mentally fresh and and the training's good. Uh, so yeah, I always feel pretty pretty prepared. Um, and like I said, good heat and it's at about 1500, 1600 meters. So a bit of altitude as well. Um, yeah, and and let's let's see at the nationals and in the early parts of the season if it's if the training's paid off. Maybe a little bit off the cycling path now. Isn't it true that you live close to the cradle of mankind, right? The oldest ever found remains of a human body we are find just a little outside of Johannesburg. Is that correct? Have you ever written there? Because I did visit that place, of course, once as a tourist. But have you ever written through that? That is about 20 kilometers from my house. And that is pretty much 90% of my training is done in, in that area. So, yeah, if I go directly from my house, it's about 15 kilometers into, into that, that region. And there's a circular loop. And there's a nature, the game reserve where, you know, you can do safaris around there. And yeah, I was there today. Um, I'll be there tomorrow. So, so 90% of my training is in the cradle of humankind, funny enough. That is so cool. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. A lot of history there. And yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah. it's great. Jens was always funny. You know, he, he pulls out these little tidbits of information. And I always wonder, like, you know, I never saw him reading anything about that, but he knows about everything. It's, it's pretty crazy. So... So it sounds like you're down getting ready for your nationals. When are your nationals? Uh, so they're next week. Uh, Friday is the time trial. So that's the 2nd of February. And then the road race is the Sunday, which is the 4th, 4th of Feb. And how happy are you with your form after the training camp? You feel ready? I mean, obviously, there will be not much team support there. You're a one team, one rider team, right? What exactly. are the chances? What are you aiming at? I definitely, I mean, the, the last time I raced the national championships, I, I won the time trial. Um, and the year prior to that, I won the road race. So so my goals are pretty clear. I'd like to win win both events. Um, the team has invested a bit in me, you know, doing this. I'm, I'm missing some some races in France, uh, Bessege, which I would have done normally. Um, so yeah, the goal is definitely to to try and walk away with with two goals there. Um, my, my condition is good. The form is good coming from, from a team training camp in, in January and then one two weeks prior to that in December. So yeah, I'm feeling pretty good and confident. Uh, yes, I am alone. Um, and funny enough, you know, we don't have that many professional cyclists in South Africa, but but the amateur local scene is still pretty good. There'll be about 150 guys on the start line, um, all probably aiming to, to to beat me. So I'll have a big target on my back, but uh, fingers crossed uh, the training's paying off. And yeah, it's, it's hopefully going to be some good outings. Okay, you took my question. I was going to ask how many people actually show up. 150. And that's just from South Africa, the country of South Africa. Exactly. So just uh, South African riders, um, I think there's we've got three professional riders in the World Tour currently, uh, one being Louis Makies, who rides for, for Intermarché, another one, uh, Stefan de Bott, who rides for, for EF currently. Um, a few riders who are in continental teams all around the world, um, but the majority of them are kind of, we call them local professionals. They're amateurs, they have part-time jobs as well but they they race the local scene and they, there's some teams and they do these grand fondos kind of every two weeks or so uh, so there'll be like little teams of eight to ten riders so a bit of competition um but yeah there'll be about 150 guys in the start line so excuse my arrogance a little bit or my ignorance uh better better said but 
what is the the caliber of of the peloton i mean obviously you know there's a lot more riders from south africa throughout throughout the years and you know they always seem to like come back you know spend time in south africa you know talk to clubs donate to clubs i know that when jens and i were at csc back in the day we would donate a lot of our equipment um what was that the velokaya foundation yenzi yeah mm -hmm. yeah. yes velokaya i think that was the name yes so outside of the riders like yourself that are in the world tour and you know the continental teams um what level of support do the other you know 130 odd riders that show up at the start line have that you race against to be 100% honest, it, it isn't in a, in a great state. Um, the, you know, the last few years, we're seeing less and less South African riders in the professional peloton. We're also seeing less and less riders kind of at this domestic pro level. Um, you know, the, when I was racing kind of locally before I took a step up to to, to Europe and, and race there, I was racing in a local team here with six other riders. And at the time, there was maybe 10 teams and we would all get bikes and, and um, you know, get nutrition and you'd get to do races all around the country that was kind of paid for. That's definitely not it's not happening that much. So there's there's fewer teams. Um, the guys aren't getting the exposure. A lot of riders, so a lot of that 150 riders are guys who are getting bikes donated and, and, and like, you know, the, the, the program and the project that, that you guys are supporting is definitely helping these riders. Um, so I'd say maybe half of that 150 are, are solely reliant on donations and things like that. Um, and then unfortunately, yeah, the, the level and the caliber isn't great. You know, at, at any given race in South Africa or the national championships, you know that the race is going to be won between five guys. Um, it's not like there can be a surprise winner or 50 guys could win. Um, there's only a handful. So, so that is unfortunate, um, but at the same time, I think it is still good to see that there will be 150 guys on the start line, and and that what it is important to you know continue to contribute to these projects and you know give back where you can. Um, I back in my days, uh, like a thousand years ago, <clears throat> as a younger amateur, we had altitude training camps in Transvaal in uh, Krugerstorp. We went to Krugerstorp, and. Um, we participated in the rapport tour. There was a big race back then, but I believe you are too young or were already born then, the rapport tour. I mean, we talk, <laughs> you know, 1995, 1994. Yes, I was born in 94. So, so I'm, aware of, uh, I'm aware of it. So I've heard a lot about it, but yeah, it was definitely before my time. And, and everything I've heard was that it was a, a really high level race and, and very competitive. Um, but yeah, unfortunately that no longer exists. And I never got to take part in it a thousand years ago with you. A thousand years ago. We're not that old, Yenzi. Come on, come <laughs> on, come on. Um, so, yeah, let, let's start from scratch then. I mean, obviously, it's not the biggest sport in, in South Africa. How did you get involved in cycling in the first place? I, I remember Froomey telling the story and then reading in his book, The Climb, uh, that he would just be kind of tooling around on his mountain bike. Uh, was that kind of the same sort of thing for you? 100%. Uh, in South Africa, you know, cycling's done a lot more recreationally. There's a lot of um, these events, call them Grand Fondos or, or like these multi-stage mountain bike events. Um, and that's it's aimed at kind of your, your everyday fun riders, if you want to call it like that. Um, you know, there's no real understanding of what professional cycling is. When you're young, you don't believe that you could become a professional rider and make a career out of it and live in Europe. It's pretty much, oh, you know, if there's a race 20Ks down the road or 
50 k's down the road, whatever it may be, and, and anyone can get involved. The whole family can get involved. So I got involved. My parents were mountain bikers. They would do these events, and, and I would t- tag along and do the, the children's race, you know, the 20-kilometer mountain bike race or the 40-kilometer, and it kind of just gradually progressed from there. Um, apart from, from cycling, what would be other bigger sports in South Africa? Is cricket bigger than soccer, or is rugby the big one? What are some typical South African sports that every kid, every boy would do when he's at school age? When you're at school, you know, if you want to be one of the cool kids, you know, if you want to get the girls, you've got to play rugby. Rugby is the, the, the main sport, you know, we're the, we're the current world champions. We won the World Cup last year. We won at the, the World Cup prior to that. So, so rugby is definitely the biggest sport. Cricket, like you say, is, is probably right up there. Uh, football, not so much anymore. It, it used to be a few years ago, but it's, it's, I think our, our local league is, is, is not as competitive as what it used to be. Golf is another big one. Um, but yeah, rugby is definitely the, the only sport or, or the main sport of, of South Africa. And what is the state of women's cycling in South Africa? I, I know that, is it Ashley Mulman Pasio who, yeah, who yeah. Uh, you know, is obviously a big name in the sport, but what, what is the development like for, for young women in, in South Africa? Uh, yeah, Ashley Mulman Pasio, I mean, she's definitely the flagship rider. She's, she's super successful. You know, she's been very consistent over the last 10, 15 years as, as what, you know, arguably the top 10 in the world. Um, I think other than that, we do have a, a lot of talent in South Africa, but I think a lot of the, the young women who, who kind of come through the ranks, it's, it's really hard to break it in, into Europe as a, as a non-European, you know, it's, it's the other side of the world, it's expensive, it's foreign culture. Um, and if you don't kind of have real development teams and that support structure, it's really, really hard. So unfortunately the, the kind of the women's scene in South Africa is, is getting smaller and smaller. We do have some, some talent, but, but, uh, unfortunately yeah, after Ashley Moore Passio, when she decides to, to hang up the wheels, um, I do believe we, we won't see that many South African women cyclists in the peloton. Well, that's a bummer because yeah, there's gotta be talent there, right? How many people live in South Africa? About 50 or 60 million. Yeah. I think, I think statistically it's just, just under 60 million and yeah, so there's no gotta doubt be some they, talent in there, right? 100%. Um, it's also just, it's finding that, that talent, developing it, refining it and, and getting it overseas. I think a lot of people get really comfortable here. You know, you, like I said earlier, there we have this, this local semi-professional, um, domestic professional scene and you know especially in the mountain biking uh, in mountain biking people can make a bit of money they can get a bit of a salary by doing this and and then life is easy you know why would you want to go to Europe and be away from your friends and family and and suffer and struggle when you can be enjoying yourself in your home country um and I think this is the problem that people get complacent and they get comfortable they're not willing to to suffer to in order to make it and take the next step wow um so what what does that development uh, pipeline look like? Going from riding a mountain bike to you know now you being in the in the world tour, um, what what does that look like from a from a from a local level? I'm just very very curious about the amount of support or the you know the whole system that that the coaches look at or you know the support that you get step by step along the way. It's, it's very scarce and, and almost non-existent to be, to be hundred percent honest. I was very, very fortunate. Kind of, I went from riding these mountain bike children's races to, to kind of taking it quite competitively at a cross country mountain biking level. Um, I then 
alongside of that started doing the road racing and as an under 16 and as a junior i would kind of do the, the national championships um with that i was i, I was finished on the podium as a junior at our national championships and, and I got an opportunity to, to go to Europe for three months as kind of at the time in 2012, I think it was, there was a, an academy for the top six junior riders and I got to do some Nations Cups. I got to do the Junior Tour of Ireland. We were based in Belgium. I got to do some Comesas there and I got a few podiums, um, kind of got my, my name out there, got to do the World Champs in, in Falkenberg in Netherlands and, and kind of from there showed myself a little bit my step up then was through was the MTN Quebec, which then became Dimension Data. They had a, a feeder team or a continental development team, which, you know, obviously saw my potential and saw that I was a young South African coming and they gave me a, a chance to ride for them. And that's kind of the the steps I took. And, and, and when I was there, I, I won the Sprinters jersey in the under 23 Giro Valde Oster, got a stagiaire ride to ride for the World Tour team. And, and that was how I progressed. Unfortunately, um, you know, that no longer exists. Africa's team, as it was called, is, is no longer, you know, in, in the world tour. And therefore, I think there's a gap. Um, and, and it's going to be very, very hard for young South Africans to break through because you, your exposure is, is almost nothing. You know, you're racing locally and, and maybe you can go to Belgium and, and enter these commesses and, and race as a, an, an amateur. Um, but unless you're kind of dominating and winning everything, you're not going to be even seen by the local club teams, let alone by professional teams. Um, so, you know, the only opportunity for riders is to perform at the national championships, hopefully get selected to do the world championships and do something there. Otherwise, the chances of you taking that next step is, is, is very unlikely. If, if we really look at the big, 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 big picture, what, what do you think could help South Africa or Africa in general? Africa, if, I, if I'm right, there's about 1.5 billion people living on a continent, I believe, maybe. Yep, yep. So sounds about right. There's got to be a future Tour de France winner amongst that. Now we have the world's, uh, for the first time in Africa, in Rwanda, is that? Yes. Would it help you to have a world tour race in Cape Town? Like make the Cape Argus Tour, for example, make that a world tour event. Or having a little stage race, like five days, you know, Tuesday to, uh, Tuesday to Sunday. Or you think it would be better to have the worlds in Rwanda, the next year in Cape Town, the next year in Nairobi, the next year in Casablanca. So to make cycling more popular, more exposure and TV all, all uh, across the globe or all across the, the, the continent. Would that help or is that too big of a picture? I, I definitely think it would. I think the, the main problem for, for South Africa and for Africa in general is that people are just unaware of cycling. And if they, they do hear about cycling, you know, it's immediately, oh, you ride a bike as a form of transport. You ride a bike to get to work. Um, you know, even I have friends who, who know that I'm a professional cyclist or they know that I'm a cyclist and they're still like, oh, but what, what do you do for money? What do you do as a job? When are you going to stop this? You know? Um, so I think if you had more races and there was more exposure and people could understand how big it is and what it could lead to, more businesses, more companies would get involved. Um, maybe governmental resources could, could get involved and and definitely, you know, increase the, the, the awareness and then therefore, you know, encourage young riders, young children to be like, well, you know what, I can play rugby or I could ride a bike. Um, And so definitely what you su suggest there, having more races, more awareness, I think that would definitely help grow the sport within South Africa and Africa as a whole. Because I, I believe, like you say, 1.5 billion plus people is a lot of talent that's untapped. And I do believe that we have future Tour de France champions and world champions in this continent. 
I mean, there's there's creating the talent pool, but then there's also creating the fan base, right? Um, what are, I would assume the Tour de France is televised down in South Africa, but are, is there any other races that you know people can like tune in and and watch on on TV? You know, from from Europe to kind of get that exposure and get that excitement and develop that passion in order to kind of play it forward in the local communities? It is very limited. Um, you know, on, on cable, our network or cable television, they've got the the big world tour races uh, generally. So I think Tour and Under was televised. Um, I know that the classics generally are, the Grand Tours are, Dauphiné, Paris-Nice, things like that. Um, but but that's pretty much it. And and again, you know, it's, it's probably the same all over, I'd say outside of Europe. If you're not doing the tour, no one even knows, you know, oh, so you cycle, do you do the tour? And if you say, yeah, well, no, not this year, I'm doing the Giro. Oh, okay, so you're obviously not that good then. Um, that's kind of the way, what the mentality is. So so definitely, I think it should be more broadcast, more, and, and just give people a bit better understanding that, you know, there are races happening every single week in season, not just in July. So now you mentioned uh, the big races in the season, the Giro Italia, the Tour de France. Um, we believe you might be going to the Tour de France. This year, Little Track, they have a leader of Giulio Ciccone for the Giro, Tau Kuegen Hart, for the Tour de France, Matthias Gielmose for the Vuelta, plus Mats Pedersen hunting for stages. So how does your race and training program look to get you ready in the best possible shape for this year's Tour de France? So so my role in, within the team is is to to be part of the lead out with Mads. Um, so I've been very fortunate to kind of, I have the exact same race program that he does. Um, of course, we've never raced together, so we'll have to see how that works out. But, but as things stand, I'll be kind of from... From the, my first race in Europe, which is Provence, middle of February, I'll be with him uh, through to Paris-Nice, the Classics, Dauphiné Tour, and then Vuelta. Um, we'll be doing a lot of training camps together. We've just come off of a training camp now. I'll be doing another training camp with him and our other ride in the lead-out train. So it's just three of us. We'll be together for two weeks in Mallorca in late February. Uh, we do another training camp together in May. We do another training camp together after Dauphiné in June. So, you know... Our training is very, very specific to to the sprint and to to the lead out. Uh, it, it's quite crazy that I think you know racing. We, we were doing the Tour de France, but I'll probably only see some of those guys for the first time, you know, three days before the Tour, um, as as we have like a climbing specific training camp and then the sprinters training uh, specific training camp. So yeah, we were doing a lot of a lot of lead outs and and at least we have a few opportunities in the races leading up to that. Um, but yeah, it's very specific, and we know exactly which stages are ours. Um, we'll help the climbers on the, on the stages where we can, but but we have our, our goals and yeah, hopefully it, it's, it's successful and it's a positive winning train and, and we can bring a lot of victories this year. Well, that just kind of, you know, we kind of jumped ahead a little bit there. Um, you know, you were on uh, Team Dimension Data and all those um, different names that they had over the years for, for, for quite a while. You spent the last three years at UAE Emirates and now you're at Lidl Trek. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, not only meeting your new teammates, but going from, you know, changing the bikes, the pedals, the clothing, um, like how have you found that transition going from UAE Emirates, uh, to, to, to Lidl Trek so far? It's, it's been quite a change. I must be honest. Um, you know, from, from Dimension Data to, to UAE, um, it was at that time a few years ago, it was obviously a new bike, which is new geometry, um, a new group set, uh, new pedals, new, new everything. 
Um, and I've pretty much experienced that exact same thing now. So yeah, it's went from, from the Colnago with Shimano to the Trek with SRAM, time pedals. It almost feels like a different sport, to be 100% honest with you. Um, Colnago, they they only had one kind of uh, model of, of bike. So we had the, the V4 RS, where with Trek we have two. We have the aero bike and then the climber's bike. And climbing on an aero bike for the first time in about four years, it's it feels like an absolute rocket. Um, you know, I think every, it's a very, it's a huge cliche. You know, every rider, when they join a new team, they say, oh, I'm so grateful, you know, I've got the best sponsors. And I, I can truly say that I, you feel an immediate difference. Um, it's a lot of it, it's an adjustment at first. And what's nice is kind of, you get the bikes quite early. The season ends October. I already had my bike, my Trek bike with the new equipment before my last race with UAE. So you have a lot of time to adjust. It's new clothing, a new fit, fitting jersey, new fitting bib shorts, new helmets, new glasses. Um, it's always exciting. And, and I think at this level, you know, everyone has good stuff, no matter what team you're on, everything's pretty, pretty good, but I can definitely say I, I do feel a difference with, with our sponsors this year and yeah, tricks. I'm very privileged and we are lucky to have some, some top, top stuff. Maybe for our listeners and, and viewers, uh, tell them how many bikes you have right now and how many bikes you think you will have through the entire season. Let's say if you go to the tour, is there another one? Olympics, maybe another one. Let's maybe let's start. How many bikes you have now? And what do you think by the end of the year? TT bikes and road and training bikes. How many bikes will you have? Right now at my house, I have four bikes because I'm doing the nationals. So I have a training road bike and a, a race road bike. And then I have a race TT bike and then a spare as well in case something happens. Um, I, and th those are both Madones. The road bikes are just Madones. Um, I'll also have one or two Imondas um, throughout the course of the year. You know, if I happen to win my national championships, there might be a special bike there. Uh, going to the tour, you know, you always have three to four bikes. Uh, that's road bikes as well as two time trial bikes. So yeah, you'll have six bikes minimum at a Grand Tour. Um, and that would be your, your race bike one, your your bike that will be on the first car and the second car. And then you'll have maybe the Imonda. So I'll always ride the Madone, which is the aero bike. Um, so I'll have three of those as well as at least one Imonda, which is the climbing bike. And then obviously two time trial bikes. So yeah, you'll have minimum six bikes at, at the Grand Tours. And yes, the, the plan is for me to do Olympics as well. And, and I have no doubt there might even be a special bike there. So I could say comfortably there could be 10 bikes with my name on it um, in 2024. Well, I'm glad you cleared that up because when you kind of went through your race schedule, you, you kind of omitted Olympics. So I was going to ask you about that. So that's pretty, pretty awesome. I mean, the Olympics are something quite special, but something you just took me back in a, in a, in a time warp. You mentioned time pedals and back in the day, Yenzi, I know that you had them as well at, at Gan. I had them at Kofidis. I mean, time pedals were the bomb. Like everyone had them. I even had the shoes, the, the yellow shoes, and I, I loved them. But, um, I kind of thought that that pedal system was gone until I think it was last year at a grand fundo I was doing uh, a gentleman that works for that worked for SRAM uh, Wayne Stetna came up to me and he goes, hey, I want you to try these time pedals. And I kind of laughed at him and I was just like, Wayne, like, I'm not going to switch pedals. And he goes, just put out your hand. And I said, okay, I'll play along with this little game. He put both pedals in my hand and it was like, the weight difference was amazing. And it took me two, three, four weeks to get the cleats on there because I'm really 
lazy with setting up my my shoes with new cleats. I think every cyclist just dreads that whole process. And I put them on, and man, I have to say, I'm pretty happy with the pedals. Uh, what what do you think so far of the pedals? It's it's definitely a different feel if you were on Shimano pedals and now on time. One hundred percent. And and again, I'll be honest with you. Maybe it was my ignorance. Um, but if if you were to to, to name pedals, you know, or, or ask me what pedals do do I think are the best years ago, I wouldn't have even mentioned time. Um, I also I rode on Shimano for a very very long time at uh, time, but but uh, even when I I knew that I'd be riding on time, I was a little bit skeptical. Um, but exactly as you say, they, they're really really light. Um, I got the got the hang of them really quickly, and I think they're phenomenal. I mean, I also heard that you might need to change cleats more often than not. But I've been riding 100 hours a month since November, and I haven't changed cleats yet. So that's three months in, and and cleats are looking good, pedals are looking good. They're light, they're they're quite aero. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty pretty impressed with them so far. And if, if I remember right from the training camp, um, the 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 pedals I looked at. Is it possible that they seem to be a little smaller than Shimano or Kampa or, uh, pedals, and so they are less likely that you touch the ground in a sharp turn? Is that correct? Exactly, exactly. They are a bit longer, um, but but they're definitely not as well, they're more shallow, so their height is is definitely a little bit less. So yes, I think maybe a bit of aerodynamic advantage there. But again, when you're going through a, a corner and you're at the bottom of your pedal stroke, that there's less chance for yeah, hitting the ground. I 100% agree with that. Yeah, um, Yenzi, it seems like it's more of a horizontal cleat rather than a, uh, no, a vertical cleat rather than a horizontal cleat. Um, and it, it, it def definitely feels, I like it. I like it. I still have them on my bike. I'm playing around with them and uh, not looking forward to having to change the cleat, but um, I'm sure that'll happen. I don't ride 100 hour months uh, at all anymore, but uh, it's working pretty good. Um, how much influence, you know, when you go to a team, to a new team, how much influence do you actually have in your own race program? Are you just kind of going in with the white flag saying, hey, man, I'm new here, be nice? Or are you walking in maybe with a notepad with some objectives or, you know, your kind of dream race schedule and then kind of finding a, a common ground and, and compromising a little bit? How does it work these days? I think it depends on, on what kind of rider you are and also the caliber of rider you are. Um, obviously, the, the the big guys, the the top dogs, the race winners, they, they'll kind of have a lot of say and, and be able to kind of dictate their own race program. Um, when I was in discussions with, with Little Trek about, about coming over and, and joining the team, it was very, very clear from the get-go. I mean, I was having these these discussions in the Giro last year uh, already. So, yeah, in, in May, that I would be coming as part of a lead-out with Mads. Um, so yeah, my, my program is kind of going to always be dictated for me. Obviously they, they know what kind of rider I am, what I'm better suited for. And, and again, you know, if, if we kind of had that first meeting in the first training camp with the team and they, and I completely disagreed, I could maybe voice my opinion. I'm not sure if they would have listened or, 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 or I would have got my way. Um, but for, for me, it was pretty much like, okay, I'm here for one reason and you tell me what I'm doing and I'll ensure I can be as good as I can for that. Hey, um, now that Bobby mentioned the, the changing teams and, and how that is, um, you came from Team UE Emirates, and I was always curious about this. So, no secret, there is one of the biggest stars in modern cycling, Tadej Pogacar, riding in that team. 
So when you change teams, are you going to get investigated, interrogated by your new team? Do you put the light in your physical? So what does he eat? How much hours does he sleep? How quick does he train? Do, is that like just my fantasy or do you actually go, hey, can you help us a little bit? Because with Theo, later this year, we want to beat today. Or do you go, they don't ask you about that at all? They definitely do. And I think they, they ask all riders who've come from different teams. And I think especially me coming from, from one of the biggest teams in the world with you know, arguably the best ride in the world, they do say, you know, can we learn, are, are there certain things that you can tell us? Maybe not, you know, their deepest, darkest secrets. Um, because even being in UAE, I probably didn't know everything uh, of, of exactly how he trained or how he ate or anything like that. But they do ask, you know, are there things that I did notice that maybe I could tell them and they could implement to, to be better? Um, so I think I was very impressed with that, with their, their kind of willingness to learn and to try and improve. Um, but they definitely were trying to like, you know, are they, you guys doing something we don't know about just yet um but but i think it's it's from 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 what i've seen thus far the team's been super professional i think every team wants to know what someone else is doing and you always feel oh, we can be one percent better or one percent you know above someone else um but that's what's so exciting and i think that's what makes the sport so competitive and, and so much fun for the spectators and, and for everyone well, I'm going to jump on the bandwagon here because I, I've had a question for, for multiple years now because, you know, zone two training, right? It's kind of the buzzword. It's associated with Inigo San Milan and Tade and UAE. Can you tell me Correct. what a normal day of zone two training actually looks like? I can honestly say that my whole career until I joined UAE, I, I clearly didn't understand what zone two is or or we can say uae zone two is is a lot different to to the rest of the world zone two zone two training is kind of training in that that's that intensity where where you're it's uncomfortable it it obviously builds your engine um you're you're burning a hell of a lot of carbs in in that zone but i always thought zone two was an endurance ride you do zone two you know you're kind of tapping away at three watts per kilo and you can kind of ride that all day uh it's not like that with UAE zone, zone two ride is a ride where you're pretty much going to be riding alone and um, you're on the pedals from start to finish uh my typical zone two ride was you know go and do four hours at 300 or so watts um it's it's unpleasant it's not fun you've got to kind of choose your route selection you know you can't have too many down descents where you're going to be freewheeling um and you come back from that ride and and you felt every single pedal stroke you've done that day but it does sound very, very effective, I have to admit. Painful, but very effective. Like you said, it builds the engine. It gets your body used to work at the higher workload and to recover. So it makes perfect sense. But yeah, that would have been more like a zone three, Bobby, right, for us? Yeah, and that's why I wanted you to kind of say that to people because I, I, so many people come up to me and go, hey, you know, and these are local riders. These are, you know, masters. These are, you know, kind of intermediate and, you know, they, they get their watt zone, they get their heart rate zone, you know, either through a, a test on Zwift or a test outside. And then, you know, they take a certain percentage and like my zone two is, so, is this, let's just say the zone, their zone two is not 300 watts, you know, so they think like just tooling around basically at a coffee shop pace is going to suddenly transform them into some aerobic anaerobic monster and it's just it's just not the case so i'm glad you, that you uh you 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 cleared that up a little bit because it's it's a question i'm like wait a second that you know if it's zone two according to the hunter allen 
you know, training and racing with a power meter or, you know, the, you know, the Zwift platform. I don't know how much, how much training you can do in that quote unquote zone two and still be effective in the long races. So thank you for clearing that up. Um, that that <laughs> definitely answers a, a, a question that I've had for a while. Yeah, no doubt. And, and, and even myself, you know, I, every day, but it's like, oh, zone two, zone two, you know, I did a zone two ride with, with my girlfriend and I, I don't know. I don't, don't know if you did. And if your girlfriend's a really strong rider and, uh, or, or, or currently the pro peloton, I doubt you did. Um, so now that you mentioned you'll be in the lead-out train with uh, Mats or Jonathan Milan, mostly with Mats, um, but you're a former GC winner of the Tour of Lankavi, right? And uh, I, since yes, I did I'm... race there and I happen to be second overall one year, uh, that's a hell of a climb, Genting Highland. So how did you as a sprinter win back that race with Genting Highland? It's a 10-kilometer climb, which takes precisely an hour to go to the top. And or were you a climber back then in your younger years? Uh, it was in my actually my second race as a professional. It was in the, in the February of my Neopro year. And I just think I was so motivated, so excited. So, you know, I, I trained harder than I'd ever trained before. I was very competitive, hungry, you know, I was pushing myself deeper than I needed to because I thought, you know, this is make or break. Um, to be 100% honest, I think maybe the level wasn't what it was 10 years prior. Um, but yeah, I think I came third on the Queen stage and, and won a stage somewhere else and got some bonus seconds on every other stage. So yeah, I happened to pick up the, the victory there. It's been my first and only GC, GC victory, but definitely a race I'll never forget. We'll be right back after this short break. And now back to our chat with Ryan. Trying to understand a little bit more about your, your job for this year, being part of the lead out trade for, for Mads. Um, you know, we recently saw down in the tour down under, you know, these guys are, yeah, you know, some of them are, are new to a team just like you. But with Bora Hansgrohe, you know, like we saw, wow, that team is kind of head and shoulders above and beyond with, with their lead out. Like they're already clicking, already firing on, on all cylinders. What do you think that you need to work on with the team, with Mads, um, to, to really dial in that, that lead out? What are some of the, like, the little bullet points that you, you want to check off the list? you know, when you're, when you're going to those first races? That's a very good question. Um, firstly, I think sprinting has changed a lot over the, over the years. And, and I think nowadays as well, you know, cycling is so competitive and teams are trying to get as much as they can out of a race where you're not going to go to a race with just a solely like seven riders for the lead out. Um, you're going to have, you know, some guys focusing on GC days, some guys focusing on breakaways and then, and then your, your guys around the sprint. Um, as you mentioned, Bora have have definitely got three guys who are who are really really strong, really fast. Of course, you know the other teammates help them and guide them and position them and get them into the, the final kilometers. Um, but but those three are are definitely showing that yep they, they've got they they're doing something right for the moment. I think for us, you know, we we've also got a, a group of three riders. So it's myself, Mads, and, and Alex Kirsch, uh, the current Luxembourg national champ. And the main thing is to learn how each other race to to kind of being able to without even saying anything in the race because the sprints are now getting so much faster and faster and more aggressive and there's so many crashes and, and people are just taking risks and doing whatever it takes to try and salvage some kind of result that it's it's absolutely mad um 
you almost have to be able to know what the other person's thinking, know how the other person's going to react without saying anything. So, so the main thing is just for the three of us to spend as much time together as possible, to to race as much as possible together, and that's exactly what we are doing. So every single race that Mads does, that the two of us will, will be with him. Um, we have to believe in him. Uh, we also we know what kind of sprinter Mads is. You know, he might not be outright the fastest sprinter in the world, but he's probably got the one of the biggest engines. He can go for long. He's really good at uphill sprints. So it's kind of playing to our strengths, knowing if it's a bit of a harder day or, or there's a climb towards the end, or even if this, the, the sprint is going to be a little bit uphill, you know, we've got to back him and, and give our all for him. And maybe the days where it's a little bit chaotic, maybe tap off and, and not risk it and, and definitely have full focus. So do our homework in terms of know which stages to focus on and which are our goals and, you know, believe in him to, to, to do the rest and hopefully pull off, pull off the results. Um, I had a chance earlier uh, last week uh, to talk to um, Aji Duzer and um, Sam Bennett and he went, he felt the sprint's going faster. It's not 70, 74 anymore. It's more like 76 to 78. So he uses bigger gears. Um, that team, uh, Decathlon, Aji Duzer, looks like they're with um, Shimano and their standard gear would be 5440. What would be in your team? What's the standard gear for most of the season? The standard gear ratio, front and back. So, so SRAM work in um, thirteen tooth increments um, instead of it being a, a big chainring and then a separate small chainring. It's like a, it's a one piece, and it's it's thirteen different. So if it's a fifty four uh, in the big, the, the big chainring is a fifty four. The small one would be a forty one. I think for the majority of, of the team, that would be kind of the standard um, chainring sizes: a 54, 41. But um, Mads is on a 56.43. And of course, on the, the pure climbing days, he won't be on that. But uh, on the pure sprint stages, I think him, myself, and Alex will all be on, on 56.43s. So again, if you told, when I turned professional, you know, you, you wouldn't even use a 56 in a time trial. Now that's a road stage, you know, chainring. So it's, it is getting bigger, it is getting faster. Hey. And I'm just scared for the day. It's going to become a 60. And uh, sorry, Bob, just one, one quick question. Um, for our listeners and viewers to make it even more impressive, you're riding on SRAM, so you have a 10. Your biggest gear is a 5610. That is exactly. 160 sol or whatever <laughs> you guys do in the British-speaking uh, part of the world. That is an humongous gear, isn't it? It's unbelievable. I mean, yeah, if you're in your 5610, um, you could be riding on a flat road at a cadence of 50 and, and be traveling, you know, probably 45, 50 kilometers an hour. Um, so you, you can go fast. You, you obviously need a lot of torque and, and a lot of power to, to push that and get over that. But yeah, these, these top sprinters, it's, it's amazing what they can do. And yeah, and that's the reason it's getting faster and faster because companies are making gears these sizes. So, so maybe we need to stop that or, or just buckle up. Okay. So we've talked a little bit about bikes. We've talked a little bit about gears, but sprinters and, you know, guys that are doing your sort of job. You know, you're also, it seems like, thinking about aerodynamics in, as far as clothing, gloves, helmet, glasses, sock height, all this stuff. Like, what goes through your mind when it's a sprint day? You know, the mechanics have got your bike. That's set. But when you're in the bus getting dressed, what are the different options that you have these days to be that little bit faster or at least look a little bit more bling bling? 
you know, of course it is, it is all about as going as fast as you can. Um, I think that you want to be comfortable, but uh, if you can be three watts faster, you know, it, so what? You should be, be as miserable and as uncomfortable as you can. We are very fortunate that, that the clothing is really, really good, but it's about, you know, 100% performance. So it is, it's the aero socks. Um, if it's maybe a bit cooler, you'll have the, the overshoes that are aerodynamic, you know, so you've got these fast, you know, oh, yeah, I don't know, know what, what the material is, but these these overshoes, you're going to have your, your sleeves as long as possible with the dimples to be as fast as possible. You've got the, the aero helmet and the non-aero helmet. And unless it's 40 degrees Celsius, you're going to be using that aero helmet. Um, some guys are going as far as shaving their forearms, you know, to, to be as, as light in this aero. You'll have the aero gloves on. Um, you know, I've got quite big ears. You can't maybe see with these uh, these headphones, but you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if in a year or two I'm taping my ears back just to, to get that one percent faster. Um, talking about going faster, weight is also an interesting factor there. So now you came from Team UAE with Conago bikes, and that's one of the most well-known, oldest, most traditional bike companies in the world. I mean, me in East Germany, the first western band i knew from back you know behind the iron curtain was conago bikes but why was it that some years um two years ago maybe at mountain stages tadi bogaccio some of his uh, uh, helpers would ride the rim brakes instead of the disc brakes was it so they could change bikes quicker in between or wheels or what was the reason for that i mean i think there was definitely pressure from from the manufacturer to to be racing the disc brake bikes um because you know that's what's on the market that's what they're trying to trying to sell to the public and and um you know push out there but but the team definitely felt that it was lighter i mean today definitely felt you know if it can be 300 grams lighter you, you need that and especially when you're trying to win the biggest race in the world any gram can make that difference so so for me or my understanding and, and or what was discussed was that it was 100 for the weight um, and, and like you say, another factor could have been the ease of changing a wheel, you know, especially in those early days when there was news to everyone, the mechanics would, you'd often see them struggling to, to get a, a wheel out and then put it in correctly with the disc brakes and get the skewer in with a drill or with a, with a tool or something that the rim brake is a lot easier. Um, but, but the weight difference is, was, was the main thing. And I think the difference between the rim brake and, and the disc brakes was hundreds of grams. So, so hundred percent was, was, was the fastest and, and best option for him at the time. You know, we, we, we talk about equipment weight as being like super, super important, but you know, you see a guy at a club ride, you know, roll up with the lightest material, the most aero stuff, the most, you know, bling, bling swag, but then, you know, he, he's got 15, 20 pounds extra. And you're just kind of like, why? Well, that doesn't happen with professional cyclists. Both the men and the women these days seem to be ultra dialed in with their nutritional program with their weight um are you a, a guy that jumps on the scale multiple times a day or are you you know like what is your philosophy around weight race weight and and diet weight, weight is so important i mean it's, it's ultimately cycling is what's per kilo and and the lighter you are and the more power you can push the faster you're going to go so weight is very important um diet equally so you know it's your fuel and and it's it's what you put in is what you get out um i am so grateful that i'm not a climber or a gc rider and i have that pressure to you know count my peas and and weigh every single you know slice of tomato that goes in my mouth 
Um, obviously, when I'm in season, when I'm at races, you, you do monitor everything that you consume. And that's more so just to ensure that you're getting enough back into that you're refueling adequately so that you recover well and that you're fueled for the following day. Um, of course, you know, I go through peaks and troughs where I'm more focused and, and less focused. Uh, currently, you know, I'm, I monitor my weight every two days. Um, I'm not one of those guys who weighs myself six times a day and goes and goes to the bathroom and has a person weighs myself again. Um, I think it's important if you're if you're a GC, GC rider and if you're a climber and if 50 grams is going to be the difference between you coming first and second, you know, it's important. Um, but that's not my case. So so I'm aware of it. I'm, I'm cognizant. I'm still professional and and more so, you know, when it's big races. Um, but, but I'm a little bit less so than, than I'd say half the peloton. So <clears throat> imagine you have a stage in the tour with Mats. Okay. It's a, it's a sprint that suits Mats. You guys going to get ready. So you want to be at the best of the day. Let's say in the last 30 minutes, I would think, right? When Correct, would you yeah. start your fueling strategy to be fueled up, have enough liquid in your body, enough energy? When would you start the process to be on the top 30 minutes to the finish line? All day long or like an hour or two hours before? To be 100% honest, you know, if it's if we know it's our goal and, you know, in the Tour de France, we might realistically have five chances. You have to ensure that you're 100% for those five chances. So if I know that tomorrow is going to be a chance, even today, I might eat more in the final hour just to ensure that I recover better so that tomorrow I wake up feeling good, feeling fueled um, and, and have my energy stores, you know, topped up. Uh, obviously, then the breakfast is really important. And and even, you know, in the, in the stage, if I think, oh, this is a bit easy and, you know, if I have this extra bottle or if I have this extra gel, it's an extra 40 grams of carbs, it's an extra 150 calories, maybe I don't need this. But if it's going to mean that I'm 1% better in that final half an hour, I take it. You have to constantly be con like aware of that, aware of the heat. You know, is it hot? Am I drinking enough? Even if I'm not necessarily thirsty right now, I'm drinking for that final half an hour. And, and then kind of approaching the last hour, I'd say that's maybe when you consider taking some caffeine if, if need be. Um, and, and kind of the whole time just keeping it topped up. Um, we have kind of a rule of thumb of how many grams of carbohydrates you want to consume per hour. And unfortunately, you know, you're able to, you know, that, okay, this energy drink, this bottle has got 60 or 40 and this energy bar has got 60 or 40 and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to work out kind of how to, to keep to a certain number per hour. Um, but yeah, it's pretty much the whole day, the morning, even the night before to ensure that you are topped up for that final 30 minutes and to be good when you need to be good. I, I love that. It's definitely uh, spot on there. But I get this question a lot because like over here in the States, you know, there's a lot of fans that are watching the races um, and they ask, what is in those bottles that the riders grab right after the, the finish line? Like what is your if you had back-to-back uh, -back days where Mads is going to be going for the win and you want to be 100% on, you know as well as anybody that recovery starts basically the second you pass that finish line. So what is your recovery protocol? What is in those bottles, you know, as soon as you cross the line and even, you know, getting into the bus? So this is something that's changed a lot over the years. I think the, the, in the past, the rule of thumb is, you know, you need to have a protein shake. You need to, to recover and that you need to you get your protein to, to help re repair and rebuild the muscles. 
Um, nowadays, I think it also depends on the team and depends on your nutrition sponsor. But the, the most important thing is to, to get the electrolytes up and to get the carbohydrates in. Um, things like like cherry juice is also rehydrating. So, you know, you often see guys with this this purple or, 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 or pink or orange kind of liquid. Generally, it's either like a tart cherry juice um, that's high in nitrates or a beetroot juice or, or, or it's cranberry or something like that. High in sugars, high in carbs, replenishing the carbs. Um, you know, maybe later on you'd work at having more protein, but initially you kind of want to get uh, one gram of carbs per body weight, um, per kilogram of body weight that you have as soon as possible. Um, and that's that's pretty much it. You know, I think some some riders and some teams maybe work with keto and some don't. Some say, you know, you need more protein, whatever. But as it is in the in the last few years, which has changed a lot, even since I turned professional, it's as you finish, get as many carbohydrates and electrolytes in as you can. Um, probably requires a longer answer, but you know, um, Mats and Jonathan, you both like long sprints, right? They, they go a long time, biggest, bigger, bigger engine. So maybe you describe your perfect working day in a Tour de France stage, maybe a little fast forward, but let's say the last two kilometers, maybe every hundred meters, you give us like, yeah, we do this, then this rider goes, this rider goes. So we got like a really in-depth description of how your role will be with Mats on your wheel or Alex Kirsch on your wheel. So, so the, the stages that we'd really like like to to go for, and we definitely say would be our own focuses, are the are the sprint stages that have been quite hard. So, you know, you want two and a half to three thousand meters of climbing in that stage. So long, so far. So, the the, the pure sprinters are really a little bit tired. You know, Mads has got an, a, mass, a massive engine. He's probably one of the best climbers. Uh, if you look at all the sprinters, he can probably climb the best out of all the sprinters. So, we want quite a challenging day. Um, you know, if it's if it's quite a hard finale, a hard hard final ten kilometers, the riders already have quite a lot of lactic acid. They're already kind of at their limit, approaching the final two kilometers. Um, I'm going to be second in the line, so it will be Alex, then myself, then Mads. Um, my role being the last lead out man is to go as late as possible. So you know, in a perfect situation, I'd kind of be behind Alex. He'd kind of be surfing the top three three top five wheels and take. He would only kind of take the front of the race. I'd say with 600 meters to go in a perfect world, he'd go as long as he can, you know, and once he's gone in that 400 meters to go, even 300 meters to go, that's where I would go. Um, but we know that Mads has got a big sprint, a long sprint. So Mads can even start his sprint from 300 meters out. Um, so that means my job starts a little bit earlier. So in a perfect scenario, two kilometers to go, I'd say we'd be sitting in position five, six, seven. Um, maybe Alex needs to move us up a little bit. And even if that means I drop off his wheel and then he's kind of in the front just piloting us we have less another team in between us and we're hitting that last kilometer you know again depending on how technical the finish may be but i'd always like to be in that last kilometer in top five positions barring a, a block headwind of course and then yeah kind of when i see 500 meters to go i go as hard as i can try and be in the front of the race so that i know that when mads comes around me he's in the front of the race and hopefully no one comes past him well, you could not pay me to even be close to you guys up there doing that. I mean, I'm watching it on TV and I'm just like, I, 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 I don't know how you guys do it. But okay, so you just described, you know, the scenario. What would a super successful 2024 look like for, for you and for the team? Like what are... What, what does that look like? You know, if all this comes together, if all these pieces fit together, what is the objective? 
Uh, if you look at Mads, uh, his last year, he was very successful. He was very consistent in the classics, third in Flanders, I think fifth in San Remo, fifth in Genvefokim, fourth in Roubaix. Um, he's obviously a, a classic specialist. Um, he also won a stage of the Giro. He won a stage of the Tour. He won seven races in total. I definitely think we want to equal that or better that. Um, that's very ambitious and, and maybe optimistic, but but that's definitely the goal. Um, but I know Mads as himself, he really wants to win a classic and, and more so a monument. So if, if I could be part of him winning a monument, you know, for him, that's enough. For the team, that's almost enough to say, call it a successful year. Um, but I definitely think the goal would be to, to, to win a, a Grand Tour stage um, and then to try and win more than seven races and and definitely win a classic. And, and if one of those classics could be a monument, that's that's definitely the, the goal and, and would be almost perfect, perfect season. Right. We wish you a nice little win somewhere on the site as well. And thanks a million for being our guest and taking time to talk to us from your home in South Africa. Best of luck for the next two races, your national championships. And thanks again for being our guest today. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. And I'll definitely enjoy the, the last bit of sun I have for the last 10 days and until I have to go back to, to the Northern Hemisphere where you guys are, where it's a little bit cooler than us. Well, that's all our time for this week. Huge thanks to Ryan for being our guest. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star review and don't forget to share us with your friends. The show was a Velo production in association with Shock Giraffe. This episode was produced and edited by Mark Payne. Remember to check out the video version of this podcast by heading over to the Outside Watch YouTube channel. Get in touch with us on Twitter, Instagram, Threads, and Facebook. Just head to at Bobby and Jens and give us a follow. So Ryan was just explaining us how at his nationals he is racing against semi-professionals and total amateurs, weekend warriors, all sorts of cyclists. Now, our question is for this week, we want to know when did you ride with a pro cyclist and what was that experience like?